By the year 1114, the great game for Aleppo had been playing out for over a year. Ever since the death of the city's Seljuk commander, Ridwan, in 1113, Aleppo had been controlled by a court eunuch named Lulu, yet coveted by the rival Turkic and Frankish factions of the region. Yet these Levantine powers weren't alone in their ambitions. Over to the east in Baghdad, the increasingly revitalised Seljuk Sultanate also sought to extend its control over Aleppo as a means to regaining control over the entire region from both his rebellious former subjects and the European newcomers. By November, battle lines were drawn and preparations made for the next year. Then, suddenly, on the 29th of November, before either side could do anything about it, the earth itself began to shake. Steady movements gave way to a terrible cacophony of crunching stone and earth. In places, the very ground itself seemed to open up and swallow those unfortunate enough to be standing nearby. Those who were indoors suffered the most, being crushed under the heavy roofs of 12th century buildings. Many of them left alone to die slow deaths underneath the rubble. All it took was a few minutes. When the smoke cleared, the entirety of northern Syria, from Antioch to Mamistra and from Marash to Edessa, had been devastated. Aleppo didn't just lie on political, societal and ethnic fault lines, it lay on seismic ones too, and for the packed suburbs and heavy stone buildings of the region, this would prove to be a deadly realisation. For people with no knowledge of plate tectonics, who viewed the world almost entirely through a religious lens, it was an existential threat. It begged the question, was God punishing them? And if so, what for? Muslim areas had been hit too, but by and large, the damage had been disproportionately handed out to the increasingly beleaguered defenders of Antioch and Edessa, the two northernmost crusader states, and the ones most harried by warfare over the past decade and more. To make matters worse, as the latest Prince of Antioch, Roger of Salerno, began the unenviable task of assessing the damage and working out which settlements needed his attention the most, he was informed by one of his councillors that his father, the former regent of Edessa and an erstwhile member of the Norman establishment in the region, recently enjoying retirement in the city of Marash, had been killed in the earthquake. As Roger and his men gazed around at the terrible devastation wrought against their territories, they might have cursed the heavens. Perhaps they saw it as an omen from God of wicked deeds done. Perhaps a warning, a sign of the need to bring the war directly to the heathen. We can't be sure, but we know that Roger vigorously repaired the defences over the coming months and years, to such an extent that he couldn't really have done any better. And over the next five years, he tirelessly waged war against any and all aggressors to Antioch, with the overall goal of bringing the metropolis of Aleppo under Antiochian control. But of course, he wasn't alone in his ambitions. The final stages of the war for Aleppo were about to begin, a conflict that would eventually shift the balance of power in the region for good, and go on to define the next century of warfare and more. 
but who was Roger? Like all of the Normans of Antioch, his story begins back in southern Italy in the latter half of the 11th century. His great-uncles, the illustrious William Ironarm, Robert Guiscard and Roger the Great Count, had carved themselves out a Norman state there from the ashes of burgeoning Lombard independence movements and crumbling Byzantine imperial possessions. His father, Richard, was a son of William, one of the lesser brothers of the Norman greatest generation, though still a formidable figure in his day. William had fought alongside Guiscard at the decisive battle of Civitat in 1053, and afterwards he was the one to invite their youngest brother, Roger, to Italy. William's son, Richard, born into the cacophony of bloodshed that was the norm for the Italo-Normans, was a force to be reckoned with in his day. Over time, leading his own band of knights under the overall leadership of Guiscard, and subsequently his son, Bohemund of Taranto. Upon the calling of the First Crusade in the late 1090s, Richard, along with his cousin Tancred, were amongst the retinue of Bohemund, likely being some of his most capable lieutenants. As a result of the recent conquests in Muslim Sicily, and their upbringing in the cosmopolitan south of Italy, both men were fluent in Arabic. This was no doubt a skill that would prove to be vital over the coming decades of integration into the chaotic mess of Syria and the Levant. Upon Bowman's taking the cross, Norman lords from all over southern Italy rallied to his cause. Richard was so powerful at the time that he crossed over the Adriatic with his own autonomous war fleet, though they were mistaken for pirates by the Byzantines on their way across and imprisoned briefly. Upon realising just who he was, Richard was begrudgingly released and joined the main crusader army marching through Bulgaria and Hungary. Along with Tancred, Richard notably refused to swear an oath of fealty to the Byzantine emperor, Alexius Comnenus, preferring to cross the Bosporus in secret, in flagrant opposition to the will of the emperor, and as a harbinger of events to come. Richard was one of the commanders at the Battle of Doraleum in the summer of 1097, and subsequently served under Bohemond at the Siege of Antioch, remaining in the city with him afterwards to claim the region for their own. It didn't take long, however, for disaster to befall the two leaders. In 1100, when Bohemond was ambushed by the Danish men Turks at the Battle of Melitene, Richard was amongst those captured with his liege lord. Like Bohemond, he spent the next years languishing in a Turkish dungeon. From there, Richard was ransomed by the Emperor Alexius, who imprisoned him in Constantinople, before he was finally released in 1103, possibly under the condition that he would hinder any plans Bohemond might have to attack Byzantium. Upon arriving back in the Levant, manpower was in dire need. Not only had large numbers of knights headed back to Europe after the successful capture of Jerusalem in 1099, but the Battle of Haran in 1104 had all but annihilated the army of Edessa and saw its count, Baldwin II, captured and imprisoned. As a result, Richard was put in charge of the city by his cousin Tancred, now ruling as regent of Antioch in Bohemond's stead. By most contemporary accounts, 
Richard was despised by the citizens of Edessa, seemingly because of his ruthless and greedy tendencies. During his time as regent, when Italo-Normans ruled over the entire northern block of Crusader states, Richard also acted as a diplomat, travelling to France and Italy on behalf of Bohemond, most notably arranging his marriage to Princess Constance of France. He also participated in the ultimately disastrous campaign that Bohemond waged against the Emperor Alexius in 1108, and was a witness to the subsequent Treaty of Duval, where Bohemond acknowledged Alexius's overlordship of Antioch, though the treaty was never fully ratified. That same year also marked another disaster for the Normans, when the imprisoned Count of Edessa, Baldwin II, was ransomed from captivity by his erstwhile supporter, Jocelyn of Courtenay. Though Tancred and Richard may have attempted to hold on to the county, they were ultimately outmaneuvered, and Baldwin regained control of Edessa. During those long years of warfare, politics and leadership, Richard hadn't been alone. Unlike Tancred and Bohemond, Richard had a son who had come of age, an energetic and ruthless young man, possessing very much the same qualities as his kinsmen. And as a result of a number of timely deaths, he was about to come to the forefront of the Norman leadership in the Holy Land. Bohemond died a broken man in 1111, and whilst technically he was succeeded as prince by his young son and namesake, Bohemond II was still a child, and living with his mother Constance back in southern Italy. Tancred continued to rule as prince in all but name, whereas Richard retired to the city of Marash. In 1112, however, that young son was about to step into the limelight. Tancred died in 1112, and though his deeds before this time remain unclear, Roger was specifically chosen as his successor. The young warrior now had an especially difficult situation to contend with. He inherited from Tancred a state of almost perpetual warfare with the nearby Muslim states, such as Aleppo and the Articids. He also contended for political power with the other Christian states of the region. He did, however, inherit a strong defensive ring around his principality and a powerful army. On the 29th of November, 1114, however, when a huge earthquake tore through the defences of Antioch, destroying many of the fortifications of the Principality, Roger's defensive stance had to come to an end. Though he took great care to rebuild the defences, especially those near the frontier, he was now going to go on the offensive, arguably more so than any Crusader leader before him. An initial success at Tel Daneth in 1115 cemented both Roger's position and his renown. He was also able to forge especially close alliances with the other lords of the Crusader states. The two Baldwins and Pons, whose families were all joined together by marriage. He was further supported by his man, Jocelyn of Courtenay, another vigorous and active defender of the Franks, as well as being able to count on support from the Armenian Cilicians under Thoros, Lord of the Mountains. It seemed as if Roger had made the right decision. As far as he was concerned, 
by destroying his fortifications, God had told him to attack, and in doing so, he had been rewarded. For four years, for lack of a better option, and knowing that he couldn't afford to risk open battle against his enemies, if at all possible, Roger cautiously took his time in taking the border towns of Aleppo one by one, forcing the city day by day into submission. He was always heavily outnumbered and was well aware of the potential for disaster should he make a wrong move. The entire army of Edessa had been annihilated by doing just that in 1104 at the Battle of Haran and was still weakened because of it. The last great attempt of the Seljuk Sultan to regain control of Syria in 1115 had been a disaster. Not only had the expedition failed to take control of Aleppo, nor make any other significant gains, but it also made it definitively clear that the Turkic powers of the region were now fully independent of Baghdad. Roger's victory at Tel Danith during that campaign also had the unintended effect of reinforcing Lalu's power over Aleppo. He had already murdered Ridwan's successor, Alparslan, making himself Atabeg for another of Ridwan's sons, the six-year-old Sultan Shah, and now he began to exercise power more openly, leaving his citadel to tore his lance. This ultimately proved to be his undoing. In May 1117, Lulu set out of the city on a mission to hold talks with a neighbouring Arab dynasty. He stopped along the way, apparently to relieve himself on the side of the road. There, in full view of his army, he was shot full of arrows by his own troops. When news reached Aleppo, the city imploded. Warring factions tore each other apart on the streets in an attempt to stake their own claims to power. And then, inevitably, the outside powers began to try and storm the gates. Aksum Kor was the first to try. Like Bursuk bin Bursuk before him, he was a Turkic commander loyal to the Sultan. Rumours abounded that it was in fact he who had had Lulu killed. And as he descended upon the city with his army of tribal Turkmen warriors, Aleppo remained divided on whether to support him or not. Ultimately, the anti-Aksum Kor factions won out, and when he arrived at the city, he found the gates firmly closed. Faced with a 100,000 angry citizens, he promptly turned around and left. Again, the leading citizens of Aleppo turned to the other factions of the Levant for support. First Ilgazi's Artukids, and then the Franks of Antioch. And again, themselves wishing to take the city, and decidedly set on ensuring that their rivals did not, the Franks were all too keen to help. At least one faction in Aleppo seems to have strongly supported the Franks over the Turks, potentially seeing them as a means to throw off Turkic overlordship for good, and to reassert an Arab dynasty in the region. Thus, not long after Lulu's death, a joint Aleppan-Frankish force sallied out from Aleppan territory to drive Ilgazi away by attacking his territories to the east. In the meantime, another eunuch, an Armenian renegade called Yarektash, seized the opportunity of the turmoil to take control of the citadel, and thus the city. 
In order to achieve his goals, he enlisted Roger's support by granting him the fortress of Al-Qubba. The young Sultan Shah's Turkic supporters, however, likely grizzled leftovers from the days of Ridwan and even his father Tutush, did not recognise the usurper. Finally, after offering the city to practically every other commander of the region, Yaraktash reluctantly opted to submit to Ilghazi in 1117. Though he was seen by the learned Arab elites of the city as a brutal foreigner from the wild steppes, he was also a means to an end, and a more attractive prospect than the more powerful Seljuk Sultanate to the east. When Ilghazi arrived at the city, however, much to his dismay, he found that a new faction had triumphed. Yaraktash was already dead, and the gates were shut. By 1118, Aleppo had already been regularly looking to Antioch for protection, and Roger captured Azaz, a border fortress often seen as the gateway to Aleppo. He now definitively had the upper hand. To an outside observer, it would have seemed likely that he was about to win, being agonisingly close to achieving total control of the city. If Aleppo fell, Antioch would be unstoppable, isolating Damascus and paving the way for the conquest of all of Syria. Roger's position seemed so strong that he was able to lead a large force to support Jerusalem against the Fatimids, remaining near Ascalon for nearly three months at the height of the campaigning season, with apparently no threat from Ilghazi. Even the Byzantines stopped attempting to annex Antioch, recognising its newfound strength. By mid-1118, however, all this was about to change. All of Roger's hard work was about to come to naught. Far to the east, in the Seljuk heartlands, the Sultan Muhammad, Ilghazi's former enemy, died. And in the wake of his death, Ilghazi and Tugetkin sought to regain favour with the new secular leader of the Sunni Islamic world, Mahmud II. To do this, they decided to wage war together upon the Franks, something they hadn't pursued with any real enthusiasm before that date. To make matters worse, King Baldwin I of Jerusalem, a mainstay on the political scene for the last 20 years, died on a botched campaign in Egypt, allegedly after an old wound opened up whilst swimming in the Nile. Though another veteran of the First Crusade, the equally capable Baldwin II, formerly the Count of Edessa, took the reins of power, he was initially forced to defend his borders from attacks from both Damascus and Egypt calling on Roger's aid to do so. And Baldwin II wasn't the anointed heir, prompting a series of internal squabbles in addition to the incumbent wars against Damascus and Egypt, thus threatening to throw the United Crusader states into political turmoil. Finally, the Antiochenes played their hand too hard enslaving and robbing some of the merchants that they were supposed to protect in the Aleppan borderlands. In desperation, a court faction offered the city to Ilghazi, just like they had done in the previous year, 
though now, upon his arrival, the gates of the citadel lay open. Fears of the Aleppan citizens were initially justified as Ilgazi ruthlessly purged the elites of the city, establishing himself as military dictator. Yet Antioch still held all of the major fortresses on the borders. If Ilgazi was going to hold Aleppo, a confrontation would have to occur. Again making an alliance with Tegetkin, the other great survivor of the period, both came together for the riskiest moment in their careers. Both had survived through the long decades by playing off their neighbours against one another, be they Frankish, Armenian, Arab or Turkic alike, whilst always avoiding fighting the Franks in open battle. This was all about to change. Ilgazi was an unpopular choice in the city, as feared his reprisals against the elites were swift and brutal, though if he could hold on to the city, he would have access to vast amounts of wealth from the lucrative silk roads and caravan routes that came flooding into the city from the east. His next move was to buy an expensive peace settlement with the Franks so he could build up his army. Roger still encircling the city with a ring of strong frontier castles, also used this time to build up his forces. Everyone knew a confrontation was on the way. In June 1119, Ilgazi crossed the Euphrates at the head of a massive army of Turkmen. Truth be told, he wasn't motivated by jihad, so much as a personal quest for power. Hearing the news, Roger once more amassed his own army together, likely numbering no more than around 800 elite mounted knights and around 3,000 Frankish infantry, along with significant contingents of Turco-Pole auxiliaries and mercenaries. Together, they headed for the frontier. To the south, Baldwin II amassed his own forces, though his precarious position in his own kingdom prevented him from marching immediately. He hadn't been Baldwin I's named heir, and court factions still opposed him throughout the kingdom. In short, Ilgazi had picked the perfect moment to strike. Facing the agonising decision of whether to wait for potential reinforcements to arrive from the south or to strike immediately before his own lands were ravaged, Roger went with his gut instinct. Reminded of his own crushing victory at Tel Danith four years earlier, and the need to maintain a healthy sense of fear amongst his enemies, and respect amongst his allies, without waiting for the go-ahead from Baldwin, he marched to war. Roger's force made their camp as Samada, fortifying the hilltop to wait for Elgazi's attack, who at the time was unsuccessfully assaulting the castle at Alatharib. As word reached Roger's camp, his men began talking of impending victory 
of good omens, and in all likelihood, the idea that God was on their side. Before long, however, their scouts began to return to the camp in great haste, arrows jutting out of hideous wounds and horse gear alike. The Turks were on the warpath, moving towards them fast and hard in three separate contingents. The assault on Al-Atharib had been a ruse. Just like Roger had done four years before, Ilgazi had took his enemy by surprise. And now he outnumbered them massively. Roger's only chance was to attack while he still had a small amount of advantage. At first, the battle went well, with Roger ordering his men to take turns smashing into the Turkish line like waves upon a shore. Though before long, the entire left wing, led by Robert of St. Lowe and supported by contingents of Turcopole light cavalry, began to fall apart. Sensing their advantage, the Turks seethed forwards, enveloping the entire left wing under their massive numbers. Roger was toppled from his horse, but continued to fight underneath the standard of Antioch, a gargantuan metal cross. He made his stand. He was cut down there, along with the vast majority of his men. His one-time ally, Ilgazi, showing no mercy to his former comrade. After a few hours, it was all over. Haran had been repeated, yet this time it was the Antiochian army that was annihilated. In a grisly step custom, the wounded were beaten to death with rods and scalped, whilst 500 or so prisoners were taken captive back to Aleppo. There, allegedly, they were tortured to death in the streets in a clever piece of political theatre masterminded by Ilgazi to definitively remove the image of Frankish invincibility. The entire Antiochian army was destroyed on that day, which forevermore would be remembered as the Field of Blood. Before that day, Roger's record had been flawless. Yet that one mistake would define him forever. He'd used almost the same tactics in 1115 as he did in 1119, but this time he'd been unlucky. His fortune had ran out, and with it went the heads of practically all of the noble families of Antioch. Roger had been the last representative of Norman power in the East from the greatest generation, the last of the old guard. With his death, the glory days of Antioch were over. His campaign against Aleppo had been the one moment where a total crusader victory in the Holy Land was very nearly realised. As the satellite towns of Aleppo were one by one retaken, it became increasingly obvious that from that point onwards, the norm for Antioch would be defence rather than offence. Whereas Roger and Tancred had pushed far and wide outside their own borders, regularly launching offensive operations to seize border towns and build castles, from then on, defence would be the only means of military power for the Principality, which now, out of the necessity of survival, increasingly came under the sphere of influence of the new King of Jerusalem, Baldwin II. 
the stage was set for the next great confrontation of the Holy Land. This is a brand new podcast, so if you like what you heard, the best way to help the show out is to leave a review on iTunes. This is the best way for new podcasts to grow and for people to find the show. You can also find tons more historical material over on the History Time social media links. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you really like what you heard and want to help me to keep making new podcasts, videos and articles, then the best way to help is to become a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash historytimeuk. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me to keep making material, get sneak previews of what I'm working on, and gain the opportunity to vote on upcoming videos and podcasts. I'm Pete Kelly, and you've been listening to History Time. See you on the next one.